This morning, our gospel reading is from the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This is what is known as the Great Commission. It is uh, after Jesus's uh, crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. And uh, so after he's been raised to life again, this is how Matthew ends um, his telling of the account. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed to receive it into our hearts and to our lives. God, give us ears that are ready to hear, minds that are ready to think, to understand hearts that are ready to be changed more into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Turning to our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is... 50 days later, we have the day of Pentecost, or later after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus had told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came, and then here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are looking at uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. And for those of you who were here last week and were particularly embarrassed by the topic, I do not apologize for that. But rest assured, this week will be less awkward on the um, sexual scale. However, the topics that are covered today uh, still may make us squirm a bit, but for different reasons. Um, And we'll get into that. 
in a bit. Uh, but this one is rated more PG rather than the PG-13 we had last week. Okay, here we go. This is Genesis, thir- or Genesis 11, verses 1 through 26. Uh, a story you are no doubt familiar with, followed by a genealogy you are no doubt unfamiliar with. Here we go. The, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. After he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. After he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. After he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. After he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. After he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. There you go. Uh, As I say, this is a story that you are most likely familiar with and then a genealogy that you're most likely unfamiliar with. Um, But... One of the things we've also been talking about is the need to not skip over the genealogies. (laughs) We will be looking at both of these this morning. Um, But we will start where we are more familiar. And this is with the Tower of Babel. And I think the way that we typically uh, think of the story of the Tower of Babel is this is a kind of standalone story that just lets us know where different languages came from. Is that kind of the way you've typically thought of this story? Maybe. If that is the case, I would suggest that there's a lot more to it than that. Um, And that's actually one of the reasons why we're reading this in connection with the genealogy. To remind us that this isn't just a standalone story, that this is a story that is a part of a much larger story. This is one that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and will continue all the way through. In fact, we don't just read about Babel in this particular story. This is a, uh, a place that we hear about and a, a name that gets referred to all through the Bible. 
And it's weird because, and this is one of those Hebrew things. So um, I, I don't understand the translation issue here. But for some reason, the, uh, the word Babel in, in Hebrew gets translated here in this passage as Babel. And everywhere else in uh, the Old Testament where it is that same word Babel, it gets translated into English as Babylon. Why the difference? I don't know. It's talking about the same place, and it's using the same word. I don't know why we translate differently, but now you know you can put that note in your Bible if it's not already there. Okay. <laughs> um, and that is a big part of what's going on. You see Babylon referred to all the way to the book of Revelation. Babylon becomes this uh, kind of archetypal city of you know, the representation of people who have turned away from God. That is what we're seeing the foundation of right here. And, uh, and again, it's one that you can easily see as just a story of kind of where language comes from if you separate it from the, what comes before it. But what is the story that this comes in the middle of? This comes in the middle of a uh, of God who has created the whole world and who has created people and who has created people uh, for a purpose. He's created them on purpose and for a purpose and to have a personal relationship with him. And he has given them things to do. And when we see in uh, Genesis 3 that they turn away the, from him, the things that they have been given to do don't change. It just gets a lot harder. It gets a lot more painful. But they are still supposed to uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They are still supposed to uh, reflect who God truly is into all of creation. They are still supposed to be walking with him in all that they do. And so this is the story that we've been following along from the very beginning. And as we walked along, we say uh, things like, uh, death that reigns in Genesis 5, except there's this one guy who kind of stands out because he walks with God. And then God takes him. He was no more because God took him away. He's someone who walked with God. But we continue on, and the whole time we just keep thinking, okay, somebody is going to come and fix the whole problem. The problem that starts in Genesis 3 with uh, Adam and Eve turning away from God saying, we think we know better than he does. We are going to eat the fruit that he says not to eat from, the fruit from the tree that he says not to eat from. And one of the things that happens in, uh, in Genesis 3 is the serpent had been talking to Eve, right? Remember this? The serpent saying, did God really say? And so when God comes to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, Part of what he says to the serpent is, uh, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so from that point on, we know that God is, he's got a plan. He's going to do something. He's going to do something to destroy the serpent. And, uh, and the works of the serpent and we keep waiting for that. And so we see the next generation of, you know, Cain and Abel. Well, that 
doesn't go well. And so, and then we continue on. And as we go through, it's just still more death that seems to be reigning. And finally, we get to this guy named Noah. And we think, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one who's going to destroy the serpent. This one is this uh, you know, seed of woman, the offspring of woman who is going to destroy the works of the serpent. But it's not Noah either, is it? That's part of what we looked at last week. That if we had started thinking, all right, Noah's the guy, he's going to save everyone. Well, he does save his family. And he does preserve this line that goes forward. But even Noah fails. And so generation after generation, that is the story that we are in the midst of. And then when we come to this uh, story, the Tower of Babel, this tower in the city of Babylon, we see the same kind of thing. People who think we're going to be the ones. We're going to be the ones who do something great, who do something different, who stand out from everybody else, and we are going to, as they put it, make a name for ourselves. In fact, uh, this is one of those where uh, I don't know what you picture in your mind when you think of this tower. There have been all kinds of works of art to try to depict it, and they all look different. So I assume we probably have lots of different pictures in our mind of what it looks like, this tower that they're building. Um, but one of the things that uh, kind of biblical scholars talk about is that it was most likely a ziggurat. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I probably should have brought a picture of that. But it's this kind of uh, large stair step sort of structure, a temple sort of thing. And, you know, we tend to think of um, more skyscraper, you know, you're going to build a tall tower to touch the sky. This was the idea of real broad base. They didn't have, you know, the reinforced kind of things that we have, materials we have today. And so you just, they're working with bricks, and you try to make a big brick structure as tall as you can, so you go with a wide base, and you kind of narrow up as you go. But the idea is that it's a giant staircase. But it's not a staircase for people to climb up. That's the other way we tend to think of it. The whole idea of one of these kinds of structures is to bring the gods down. And that you find these uh, kind of all over the place. But that this would have been most likely what this this tower was, this kind of structure. The idea being, yes, we're going to build the biggest one of these the world has ever seen. And we can do this because we've got this amazing new technology known as the brick. <laughs> and so we are going to do what nobody's ever done before. We are going to bring God to earth. In other words, we of our own cleverness, ingenuity, strength, we're going to make it happen. We are going to reunite heaven and earth and we are going to bring God back to our presence. And how are they going to do it? Or why are they going to do it? Is it because they really want to be in the presence of God? Is it because they really want union with God? No, what do they want? Yeah, the pat on the back. They want fame. They want to make a name for themselves. Their motivation 
is pride, plain and simple. They don't want God. They want what they can get from him. They want a name for themselves. Well, good thing we don't have that problem today. It is in the midst of this that we see God do what we saw him do in Genesis 3. When we see Adam and Eve eating from the fruit, when they have turned away from God, and now they have brought upon themselves this separation from God. They have put up this division between them. He removes them from the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is where they have access to the Tree of Life. And to live forever separated from God is not life. And so he sends them away from the Garden. And here, you know, there's nothing wrong about the Garden. But there is something wrong about them being in that garden and having access to the tree of life when they are separated from God. Same thing with the language thing here. There's nothing wrong with language itself. There's nothing wrong with people communicating with each other. There's nothing wrong with people speaking the same language as each other. But there's something very wrong with people using that um, as a way of turning themselves and each other away from God. And if that is the project then God, in his mercy, puts an end to it. And so the way that he does this, in this case, is by confusing the language, making it where they can't understand each other. Look, they didn't have social media back then. But we have ways of communicating with people now that previous generations only dreamed of. Think of how we use it. I mean, you think about if you had, uh, you see sometimes with athletes, they get on camera after they win the big game, and they're, they're only on there 15 seconds. And they'll say something, you know, they win the big game, they're like, oh, I just want to give, you know, praise to God, thank God for the, and people sitting at home are sometimes like, oh, you know, get all cynical. Why you got to do that? You don't have to do, you just, just, just say you worked hard, you trained hard, and there you go. You know, I take it a little differently. I think that typically when you see that kind of thing, it's because these are people who know that they might get 15 seconds in their lifetime in front of a worldwide audience. And if you only have 15 seconds in front of a worldwide audience, what do you want your message to be? And is it, I am great? Or is it, God is great? I think for a lot of these folks, that's exactly what's going on is that they, they recognize this is that moment. Bring it back to social media. We all have those moments, and we don't even recognize it. When we are communicating on the Internet at all, that is our moment. <laughs> now think about what we're saying. If you could communicate anything to the whole world, what would you want it to be? What kind of message would you like uh, to leave to the world? And how is it that we say these 
things online that give a very different impression than what we might want to do if we were actually doing things on purpose. So that's kind of the world we live in now. And you want to know one of the fascinating things I've seen happen as we've been able to communicate like this? Even in English, I don't know what's happening in other languages, but in English, I can tell you, our language has gotten confused. There are words that we all used to know what they meant, and we don't all agree on what they mean anymore. And we can have conversations that turn quickly into arguments just because we don't agree on basic vocabulary. How has this happened? Why is this happening? I don't know. But as I read this story, I wonder if maybe there is a divine mercy there keeping us from doing the things that we are seeking after when what we are seeking after isn't God. When in our own pride we are trying to make our own names great. But where is the humility? You can see this in every area of our society. Pick one. Pride and people trying to make a name for themselves in that particular area is rampant. I think this is less a story about language and more a story about independence from God and the pride that uh, kicks that off. We see at the end of... um, Verse 9. That it's from there the Lord has scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Isn't that interesting? That was the thing they were afraid of, was being scattered over the whole earth. But what was it that God had given them to do when he first created people? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What was it he... uh, reiterated to Noah after they got off the ark. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's exactly what's happening here as a result. Um, I will tell you one other thing, just because this is fun, kind of a trivia thing. But uh, this is another Hebrew thing. And no, you don't have to read the Bible in Hebrew, but you should pay attention to people who do. <laughs> um, when it talks about that is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language, that word confuses the, um, it's like B-L-L. So that would be how you'd spell that. It's all consonants. The vowels don't matter. I mean, they do matter, but they're not written down. Anyway, <laughs> so it's just B-L-L is this word uh, for confused. And then Babel or Babylon as we translate everywhere else is BBL. You can see the similarity there. But what's fascinating is the words that are used to tell this story have 
a high occurrence of B and L consonants throughout the whole story. And so if you were to read this in Hebrew, I mean, it's just a lot of B's and L's and B's and L's, and then you get to the end, and there's this, and that's why it's uh, BBL, because of the Lord, BLL there. Uh, yeah, the language. Isn't that neat? I think that's neat. This, the whole Bible is just masterfully put together, uh, which you might have suspected. <laughs> anyway, um, but it's just so much more than we often even note. But we get from there to the Shem's family line. Okay. So what? Why do we go through this whole genealogy? And like I say, part of this is because this is a connectedness to the whole story. Well, what is it that we were waiting for when we get to the Tower of Babel? We are waiting for someone who is going to destroy the serpent, right? To crush the head of a serpent. That's what needs to happen. Well, it sure hasn't happened in Babylon, has it? It's like a whole community of people who have decided just to follow right along in turning away from God, just like the serpent suggests. When, when you get all the way to Revelation, you see the same kind of thing, Babylon as representative of those who turn away from God collectively. You see the serpent come back again. It's like a full-blown dragon. There are all these... Well, We'll read about that next week for Wednesday night stuff. Yeah, read that. Come join in the discussion. Um, but it continues on. And in the, the genealogy we have here, it's that same waiting for. Is there going to be someone? Is there going to be someone? Well, it's not from Babylon. But then we do have, as contrast, Shem's family line. fascinating the way that um, that Genesis tells this story when we looked at uh, the line going from Adam to Noah ten generations ten is a big number in Genesis by the way ten generations and then Noah has how many sons Uh, how many sons did Adam have Yeah, in both cases. And then here we have um, from Shem, who's one of Noah's sons, uh, to Terah. It's actually from Noah to Terah. It's 10 generations. And how many sons does Terah have? Three. And each time you have from Adam, you have the... It's not from Cain. It's not from Abel. It is from Seth. That's where the promise is going to be fulfilled in his line. And we're going to see as you go all the way through uh, the rest of the Bible, this, that line just continues to narrow. And so as population spreads, the promise is always, but it's from here, but it's from here, but it's from here. And so out of everybody. And so we saw that uh, from Adam, it's going to be from the line of Seth, from uh, you get all the way down to Noah, who comes from that line. And then we see it's going to be from Shem. Not Ham, not Japheth, but from Shem. The promise continues through him. And as we go down through the line, now we get Terah. 
who has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And we're going to look at next week how it is not going to be from Haran. It's not going to be from Nahor. But the line of the promise, the blessing is going to come through this man named Abram. And then we're going to spend some time with that guy. One thing, though, that I want to point out about him before we even get there next week. Do you remember what it was that the people said as they were building the tower, the reason they wanted to build the tower was to make a name for themselves, right? Flip over to chapter 12. We'll look at this more later. But you've got to see this in, in contrast. You go down the generations from Shem all the way till you get to Abram, and God calls this man Abram. And one of the first things he says to him in chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. We're going to look more at what that means later, but I just want you to hear that contrast right now. The difference between those who wanted to make a name for themselves and the one that God says, I will make your name great. That is a big difference. That is a big difference. It is the reason that... um, It is the reason you can see the distinction between pride and humility all the way through the New Testament. Through the teachings of Jesus, the writings of Paul, writings of Peter, that God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. This is the distinction. This is what ought to make us squirm this morning. How many different ways do we seek to make a name for ourselves, even today? And yet, it's not about making our name great, is it? What were we created to do? We were not created to let everybody else know how awesome we are. We were created to be in a relationship with God and be so enthralled by his greatness that all we want to do is let everybody know how great he is. This is what we were created for. We see this most of all in Jesus. We see him doing exactly this. And then we see him commissioning his disciples to do just that to go into all the world with this kind of message, to make more disciples, more followers of Jesus and his way, not our way. And then as we read at Pentecost, a story that goes right back to Tower of Babel again, but this time with the undoing of the language confusion. We see that when the... uh, Disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. What do they start doing? They start speaking to all the different nations who have come from all over the place to Jerusalem for this festival, but they all speak different languages. How are they going to be able to understand each other? And the Holy Spirit, it's the the opposite of the Tower of Babel. Instead of God confusing their language so they cannot build their own thing out of pride, he allows them to understand each other, 
so that they can communicate the good news of Jesus. Where we stopped that story is with the line of uh, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? The, would be the crowds who are hearing everybody speaking in these languages. And there's some that make fun of them, saying, oh, I've had too much wine. And then Peter gets up. And his message is really important. I'll let you read the rest of Acts 2 later today. But I'll summarize it for you this way. Peter does not get up and say, no, 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 we haven't been drinking. We're just all speaking different languages because we're awesome. God has chosen us to do special things. That is not his message at all. Peter gets up and he says, no, 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 it's not that we've been drinking. God has poured out his spirit so that you can know about Jesus. And he tells them about Jesus. And when you get to the end of his uh, first sermon there, it says those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It wasn't about Peter. It wasn't about the rest of the disciples. It was all about Jesus. This is the message we have been given. So I'll ask you again. If you had 15 seconds to communicate to the whole world, if the camera were on you, the microphone is in your face, what do you want to tell everybody? What do you want them to know? Now understand, our lives are very brief. The whole of your life is that 15 seconds. Make his name great. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.